Nick Cannon and spiritual syncretism. Uh, Umar Johnson says, if you marry a white woman, it's because secretly you want to be white. And what about the whitewashing of Christianity? We're going to discuss that and more on this episode of The Urban Perspective. This is The Urban Perspective. I am grateful to be joined today for The Urban Perspective by Pastor Ernest Grant. He is one of the pastors at Epiphany Camden. This brother is an educated brother, a historian, an intellectual, a philosopher who has a wealth of knowledge on a far range of topics. So again, thank you for doing this for us, brother. Um, You wrote uh, an article not too long ago. Uh, in response to Nick Cannon and his spiritual syncretism. Syncretism. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I want you to do two things for our listeners. Can you first uh, tell us what led you to write that article and respond to him? And secondly, explain to us what spiritual syncretism is. Sure, sure. And uh, again, thank you for having me. Um, There was an article that I read uh, sometime last year, about 2015. It was on uh, The Atlantic. And it was talking about how comedians began to become public intellectuals. Right. Uh, and I and I realized that although this has existed in hip hop for quite some time, um, we think about Public Enemy, they always had a, a socially conscious message, EPMD and a, and a myriad of other uh, hip hop purveyors. I realized because of the advent of social media and how it's from, you can take the information basically directly to the consumer that these guys are able to get their information, their their spiritual ideas out very, very quickly. And uh, I think of, among those guys, you have Nick Cannon is definitely one of those guys, David Banner, uh, Killer Mike, T.I., especially recently, uh, Kendrick Lamar. And um, I think one of the most powerful gentlemen uh, who's, who's now incarcerated is Kevin Gates. Kevin Gates is... He would do numerous back-to-back videos on Instagram, a minute plus, really laying out his his convictions as far as uh, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, and how they all sync together. Uh, but Nick Cannon did an interview on the Breakfast Club sometime late last year, and he was donning his uh, his traditional garb. He had his he had his head wrap on, and he was asked about it. And um, I listened to him talk, and he said that he was. Uh, he was his primary spirituality is Christianity, but he's fluent in a, a lot of other spiritualities. Right. And I immediately thought about the idea of syncretism is when you take all of these different competing, often contradictory worldviews, you send you you seamlessly put them together. Um, and what you're left with is this uh, inoffensive, unauthentic sort of religious system that you sort of customize for your own preference. And I wrote an article to Christianity Today, really talking about this and um, the historical precedent um, all the way back to the Gnostics. The Gnostics would take biblical terms, they would appropriate them, and and it would transpose them for sort of non-biblical ideas like the resurrection, um, like the the flesh being evil and the spirithood being good. 
Uh, we see this all throughout liberal theology, how they would take all of these competing ideas and merge, sync them together. They come up with their own personalized sort of religion that's not in, that's not offensive at all and that's customized for them. And Nick's words were very similar on The Breakfast Club. Now, if you listen to The Breakfast Club interview and then you cross-reference it with um, the Tax Stone interview that he did, it's very, very similar. He's communicating many of the same ideology. So I wrote an article to Christianity Today um, talking about urban mismatch religion, and Nick responded, oddly enough. He, um, he, he was very gracious. I wasn't trying to bash him in the article. I was trying to give a fair critique of what I believed were his viewpoints. And he said in a tweet to me, he said, well, you know, I read your article. I've seen some of your interviews online. Uh, and I'd like to talk to you more about your ideas. So wow. uh, I'm trying, yeah, it was, it was really interesting. So I'm trying to get it. He's a busy man, you know, he's doing so much, but I would love to, you know, sit down with him and discuss some of his uh, religious philosophies. But uh, yeah, he said he read it. So that was good. And, uh, and I was inspired. So I, I try to at times take, if if something is communicated in pop culture that I think is a little bit off, I like to take the time to to sort of address it. So right. yeah, Nick Cannon is one, and I'm just working through some other stuff now. That's great. That's great. Yeah, one one of the things he mentioned in his Breakfast Club interview is that he was embracing his kingliness. Uh, he said that mm -hmm. several times about embracing his kingliness. And one of the things I recognize from uh, that that particular phrase and the wording is that it seems as if um, black and brown people, when they think about Christianity, that they don't feel as affirmed or they don't see affirmation uh, within uh, the Christian religion. Therefore, in order to be affirmed in their blackness, not, not deifying it, but just from an affirming standpoint, sure. it seems as if there is a deficit when it comes to Christianity. Can you speak more to that? Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's uh, in many ways Christianity has the rap of being the white man's religion uh, because it's been more Europeanized and we see more white authors, white theologians, white pastors, white preachers on the front lines more than we see ethnic minorities. Uh, I'll speak specifically to the African-American community. Um, oftentimes we think that the church has uh, specifically, the African-American church has lost its prophetic prowess because yeah. in many ways it, we've been uh, labeled as either uh, prosperity theology or uh, uh, or woke theology, if you will, this more black powerish pan-African type of ideals. Mm -hmm. And I, I think uh, that is a, a gross and a wrong character culture of the black church. I mean, that they, they, we are on the front lines, especially this new realm of black evangelicalism. Um, I think about, uh, that should happen shortly after the civil rights beer, these black evangelicals like Carl Ellis, like Tony Evans and a myriad of other brothers that have, uh, raised up through the ranks and began preaching the gospel, but yet, uh, didn't compromise on social issues as well. So when I hear him saying things like kingliness, um, at first, I couldn't tell whether it was his daily affirmations or whether he was taking a shot at the church. But I think in many ways, um, we have to put ethnic minorities who have expertise, who have theological training, who are or whether that's formal or informal on the front lines, communicating that the Christian faith is diverse, that is broad and that it's a, it's a large matrix, not just one specific string. So. Yes, yeah, so I listen to Nick and, you know, I appreciated his comments and I appreciate him affirming 
that young African-Americans are kings and queens. I, I mean, in, in one sense, I know from a biblical perspective that, you know, we reign with Christ. Um, we reign by right of him defeating the devil on the cross and resurrecting vindicatively. So in one sense, I'm, we are. That is right. However, I think the danger is, is when we, like you said, begin to deify our African-Americanness and that takes precedent over us being Christian. So when I see myself as a black Christian with the adjectival form on top of the Christian, no, I just happen to be a Christian who happens to be an ethnic minority, an African-American of which I am very proud of, but I recognize that I have a higher order with Jesus. Yeah. And that's, that's a, that's a key point that, um, you can affirm without deifying. And I think sure. it's important that we talk about and then we emphasize that distinction because typically it seems like when we begin to affirm ourselves that some perceive it as we're just pro-black, anti-white, or that we're now, uh, we're, we're more militant than we are Christian. Uh, when, in sure. fact, <clears throat> when in fact, when you're talking about uh, any oppressed people, any oppressed people from Exodus to now, <laughs> to America, you know, uh, affirmation isn't something that is prohibited, uh, even mm. in the scriptures. And so it's something that we should we should do and we should do uh, intentionally. You mentioned uh, also just the whole white man's religion thing. One of the things mm -hmm. that baffles me is just the lack of historical awareness. You know, mm -hmm. I've been talking about the book, How Africa Shaped the Christian Mind. And uh, he talks extensively about how guys like Adolf von Harnack intentionally ignored uh, all black contributions to faith spirituality, monasticism, and philosophy. Uh, can you talk a little bit about just uh, some of the, the, the African origin of Christianity and the history, rich history? Many of the church fathers were black and African uh, thousands of years, a thousand years plus before the slave trade. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the notion that Christianity is a white man's religion um, I think it's been around for quite some time, but it was really started to be communicated by Elijah Muhammad right. around the 1930s. He was a, a huge, huge purveyor of that notion. Um, and I think he was doing that because, as we just mentioned earlier, he was trying to affirm the ethnicity of African-Americans right. um, outside of this westernized understanding of Christianity. Because we seem to teach church history oftentimes from that vantage point. So I hear about, you know, Melanchthon, I hear about Martin Luther, I hear about Calvin often, I hear about, you know, all of these great gentlemen that did a lot of great stuff in Europe, but rarely do I hear about uh, North Africa. You know, rarely do I hear about how there was an intellectual transfer specifically from Africa to Europe and how exegesis and monasticism first matured in North Africa. You know, you think about the school of Alexandria uh, where many parchments were written. You think about uh, the school of Antioch, which is a little bit northwest, but we think about Carthage, for example. These were African bishops that taught, believed the gospel. Uh, and there's a rich history there. I think about, I think about Augustine, for example, you know, Augustine of Hippo, um, and, and how much of the theology that was uh, birthed from the reformers came from Augustine. Him. Uh, and Augustine was an an African man. He was his mom, whose name is Monica, yeah. was a Berber. That's part of a North. <laughs> that's part of a North African tribe. Yeah. You think about Origen, Tertullian, 
uh, Agnatius, uh, I think about Athanasius, I mean, Athanasius, uh, the, the black dwarf who was a yeah. deacon, who wasn't even a bishop at the time of the Council of Nicaea, who, uh, who, who single-handedly uh, put had Christianity and the deity of Christ on his back, though the deity of Christ wasn't just communicated there. It was communicated through the doc, through the scriptures, firstly, through the letters of the church fathers and all throughout history. So when Ar when this whole issue hopped up with Arius, it was it was it, it was an aberration. They knew that Christ was who he who we say he is in the scripture. So all of these men were African descent. And that's something that we can take precedent in, you know, specifically in North Africa, down toward Egypt, all the way down toward Nubia, uh, which is south of Egypt, and even in West Africa specifically, um, we often say that Christianity didn't, didn't reach North Africa. Though there were some real issues there, the Portuguese reached North Af the, the Portuguese reached West Africa um, around the 14th and 15th century. Uh, they had bought it there. That's not to say that many of the slaves that were bought our brothers and sisters, our ancestors that were bought on the on the the, the, the Middle Eastern slave trade, not to say. That all of them were Christians, or but but there is a good chance that that could have existed. So, you know, I think if I think we can take great precedent in that that Africans have contributed to ethics theology, we've con 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 monasticism specifically. That was a, 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 a an, an Egyptian birth type of thing. So we can take great hope in that. Right. And then we have great e even we had a great we had great theologians and preachers like like Richard Allen like Absalom Jones like mm -hmm. Henry Highland Garnett um uh, a number of brothers and sisters that are African in the sixth African and that embraced Christianity and preached it you know epically throughout the throughout uh church history so it's it's a it's a beautiful thing man that's great Marvin McMickle uh, Dr Marvin McMickle uh, has a great book on kind of the encyclopedia of just black mm -hmm. Christians historically. And so that's a mm -hmm. good resource to kind of give summary on these people that you're talking about, Richard Allen, Absalom Jones, the founders Absolutely, of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. These are things that we need to know. What, what, one of the things that baffles me um, about the, uh, this, the I, I would say Christendom from this standpoint is when we bring things uh, like this up and we begin to talk about uh, the fact that Augustine uh, was, Augustine was African, Athanasius was mm -hmm. African, Cyprian mm -hmm. was African, Tertullian mm -hmm. was African. And we can keep going on. Like these guys, African, uh, how come uh, many uh, within e evangelicalism say their race doesn't matter? How come it doesn't matter now <laughs> that we're pointing out uh, the African heritage and ethnicity, you know, of these men? Yeah, yeah. Well, that is a position that you can take. That's a very privileged position that you take uh, there. Um, you know, if, if you think about how the color of our skin, the melanin in our skin has caused us to be eschewed uh, since uh, Antony and Isabella arrived in Jamestown uh, mm -hmm. in 1617. And then the, the codification of slavery all the way out, all the way throughout 1680 and a, and a myriad of other dates. Um Blackness has been seen as something that is is not something to be proud of. I mean, if you even think about the racial caricatures that have even persisted to this day, the Angel Mama sort of ideology, the the menacing black man ideology, we, we've been taught that blackness and it's been communicated 
through uh, quote unquote white superiority and this majoritarian type of view that it's not something to be proud of. And frankly, on top of that, um, African Americans have contributed nothing to theology other than hand clapping, foot stomping and good singing. So uh, when we bring those up, I think our white brothers are put off because they think, as you mentioned earlier, that pro-blackness means anti-whiteness um, and that whiteness in and of itself is not a culture when in actuality it is. Whiteness is a culture. There are some cultural norms and specifics that are tied to whites as it is with African-Americans. Um, but when I think about African-American culture specifically, I think about how many times it seems like some of our white brothers and sisters love our culture. They love the music. They love the cooking. Uh, we have, according to Joe Fegan, who is a Texas A&M sociologist, he says we were co-creators of this whole of the culture in America and that we, we built it alongside whites. So whites have loved our culture, but not all the time have they actually loved African-Americans as the people themselves. So they want to get us to heaven, but not necessarily care about my body. So they care about my soul, but not my body. So when we bring that up, I think it's, it's important for Afri for our brothers in the majoritarian context to know that this is this is not simply this is this is an apologetic gospel issue because right. many of our brothers and sisters are walking away from Jesus because right. they actually believe it's a white man white man's religion yeah. they believe that they have no place they don't know that Abyssinia was in East Africa where Christianity was there longer than any anywhere else they don't know that specifically that Thomas Odin said that Christianity is so old in Africa that it can be considered a traditional indigenous religion. They have no idea. Um, and it's as though you need, they need a gatekeeper in order to believe uh, great preaching gentlemen. You know, I said it at a conference. I don't know if I got in trouble one time, but uh, it's like almost unless a person has blogged for TGC, unless they have uh, written for uh, Desiring God, unless they are part of the Acts 29 network of Southern Baptists, many people don't want anything to do with them. Because they feel like they have to be vetted by our white brothers and sisters first. When in all actuality, uh, these brothers have been preaching the gospel clearly and fluidly from before they even got noticed by these conservative evangelical circles. So I, I think our, our white brothers and sisters, if we could take a step back and we can communicate, help them see what it is that we're, what, that we're trying to do, I think that many of them would be more accepting, but some naturally will continue to be resistant to it. Yeah, that brings me uh, to, to the next uh, thing I wanted to ask you about, and that is the whitewashing of Christianity. Um, because as you, as you mentioned, uh, you mentioned tons, several different African church fathers that preceded yeah. the slave trade by more yeah. than 1,200 years. Yet, when um, I, uh, even at my seminary, and, and I've talked to countless brothers and sisters who share my sentiments as well as, you know, as I, I speak with you now, that there's a white picture of Athanasius on the book. There's a white picture. Uh, there's a white man who's supposed to be uh, Augustine. There's a white man that's supposed to be Tertullian. Moses was white. David was white. And of course, they make Jesus white. So <laughs> it's interesting. It's interesting that all of these African or Middle Eastern people are somehow white. Yet when we point out that that's historically, geographically, and just straight up untrue, it's inaccurate and untrue, when we talk about that, then race doesn't matter. It's interesting mm -hmm. that race doesn't matter after you've already made a picture of making someone with melanin in their skin white. 
exactly how come right. race doesn't matter after you've already made the picture you've already written the book or you've already posted the article um so yeah. this this is what we're talking about when we talk about whitewashing can you talk about just culturally and then uh, i would love for you to address this apologetically uh, for those that are watching how whitewashing affects us uh, culturally as a people but then even as we try to share our faith um how, how whitewashing affects us yeah 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 white yeah whitewashing of christianity is when we have the posture that people of the african diaspora have made no contribution mm -hmm. to theology ethics culture class in christianity that's that's the sort of idea of whitewashed christianity yeah. um and the problem is is that we tend again to uh, publicize the contributions of our western brothers and sisters our european brothers and sisters that are very light in the melanin and we don't talk too much about uh the brothers in in africa and asia and other planets where there's black and brown people uh and i think our brothers don't realize that uh it's very imperialistic Mm. And it's very uh, colonialistic yeah. when we try to infringe the wrong race or not represent a demographic as clearly um, and paint everybody as white. That's that's very offensive um, from from that sense. And it's very hurtful to those in the African-American community because they believe because uh, many people that I have engaged in the inner city. I'm in Camden, New Jersey. It's a majority black context. We set up on the corners. We serve water, ice. I have to have a lot of conversations with people. And uh, I wrote in the one article about um, uh, defending the faith in the inner city on Christianity today. You know, a gentleman poked me in my chest and he said, don't you know that that's just, you know, garbage that was rehearsed or, or regurgitated by the white master that he taught our ancestors in order for them to be submissive to the message and just read the, the few passages that talk about slavery to them so that they be submissive, though those passages don't refer to chattel slavery you know we clearly know that chattel slavery is the equivalent of man stealing and right. if you look at amos amos talks about defrauding people you're building your kingdoms but yet you're defrauding people of their wages you right. know so the christianity the ethics of christianity say that you cannot take advantage of someone else for your benefit you can't exploit someone else for your benefit but rather show this mutual love and koinonia that we see exemplified in Jesus. So a lot of our brothers, uh, a lot of brothers that I encountered, they just really believe that. They believe that the first time that Christ was preached was to slaves on Southern plantations. And that shows that there's a disconnect in the messaging that's done on a, from, a, from, from a, a, a corporate stance in Christianity. It seems like the main, what's mainstreamized is the reformers. The white reformers we have conferences on it you, you know tgc right. done talked about we are protestants you know did a did did a few sessions on calvin and did some on luther not realizing the backs the intellectual backs who, of the people that they stepped upon was primarily augustine primarily tertullian pri primarily athanasius cyprian a myriad of other people they're actually done it there was a study done by drew university um they looked at all of the writing. Well, they looked at a majority of the writings by Gregory of Nicaea, Gregory of Nazianzus. These guys were the Turkish church fathers. And they were taken back by the striking similarities of their writings to those in North Africa. 
specifically right. the school of Carthage and specifically the school of Anthony of of Alexandria. They were taken back. So it shows that they simply built upon the ideas that were already communicated so much so that they would come many, many Christians in the, the European Mediterranean world would come down there and study with a lot of African bishops to learn theology. And it was even said at one point, uh, my, my good brother Watson Jones, who's got a PhD, told me about this, that, that many of them didn't trust their own exegesis. So they began to teach the exegesis of the North African father. But they, so that just shows you. For it. But they didn't yeah. get credit for it. Exactly. So that just shows you the intellectual <laughs> prowess that these brothers have had. And again, I think it comes back to this colonialistic, imperialistic right. mindset that says that African-Americans haven't contributed much less to anything, but, right. but definitely not toward Christianity or theology. So from an apologetic standpoint, and I'm sorry for this long winded answer. No, that's cool, man. From, you know, from a from an apologetic standpoint, I that is one of the biggest objections that we face, that I face specifically on a continual basis. Some 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 apologists say you have to remove the intellectual rubble so that people can see Christ clearly. Well, that is one. That's not just rubble. That's a, that's a huge building that was blown apart. And now we have to address on a regular basis. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's sad what's transpired, but um, but we keep that in our back pocket. So and yeah. we continue to fight theological imperialism. You know, I think one one of the things that um, I say, you know, white, white evangelicals and then even some uh, black and brown people who have totally sold out to reform theology. And what I mean by that is uh, they've totally embraced reform culture, not realizing that it's, right. you know, Calvin was anti-Semitic. All right. So he wasn't perfect. You know, he's not Christ. And many of these reformers uh, were racist. Uh, Whitfield, he uh, that joker got on a boat to fight for slavery, in favor of slavery. Uh, so these are things that we that that are you know that that can't be ignored. But but you said something interesting about how these Turkish church fathers uh, essentially uh, got a lot from Africans but didn't give them credit. Uh, I call that ecclesiological and theological appropriation. They're, yes. they're taking they're taking not giving us credit, then uh, when we even go, we go to our seminaries and, and you go into these predominantly white settings, they're extremely critical of people they actually got the information that they have from. And yeah. they don't even acknowledge, they don't even acknowledge that it were, there were African people, uh, Perpetua, mm -hmm. sister, African sister, these oh, yes. people that contributed, you know, to the Christian faith. And um, just to put a white face up there and say that that's someone's African, I wonder how they would feel if we just made Calvin and Luther black and we start putting them, you know, black faces on books. Maybe maybe that's what it takes for them to understand the severity of what yeah. they're doing to black and brown Christians right. uh, and we, that have to that have to first explain to people that, yes, this book does talk to you, that Ephesians 2 presents this reality that mm -hmm. God has created eight people from all people. And yeah. historically he's used all, all people of different hues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, no. I mean, I, I couldn't agree with that even more. I mean, we even have to go e even deeper. Okay. Because someone was born in African Africa, the continent, does that make them Negroid? Do they have Negroid features, if you will? You know? So it's like a place like Cypria that was considered that is in Africa and is in North Africa, but yet, 
is was, was a Roman province, people say, oh, well, they were just Romans that lived in North Africa. So the work that we have to do to, to, to simply prove, prove the point that Africans, whether, whether good or bad, whether, whether on each side, uh, whether Old Testament or New, um, have played a huge part in redemptive hi history, whether they were agitators of the people of God or whether they were were friends with the people of God. So yeah. I think we just have to we just have to make that clear for our brothers and and continue to reaffirm that to brothers and sisters of color. Yeah, and I and I would encourage the brothers and sisters that will watch this is you know, when you accept the whitewashing, you actually play into white supremacy. Uh, even mm. down even down to the fact that we're we're essentially they they've essentially tried to make northern Africa southern Europe and to, mm -hmm. to try yeah. to, to try to whitewash a, a part of a continent now uh, in order to take credit for what Africans, African men and women have contributed to the Christian yeah. faith. Uh, but mm -hmm. before we go, man, I, I think I, I want to end on a cultural note because this whitewashing actually also plays out into how we engage one another. And uh, not too long ago, Dr. Umar Johnson uh, was on The Breakfast Club. And yes. he was he was talking about interracial marriage. And one of the things he said was, you know, if if you uh, marry a white woman, you're going to have a hard time getting respect from me. And uh, he began to say he began to say that if you do that, it's because secretly you want to become white. Now, you, you said mm. mistake. People are going to be mad at you by saying he made a mistake uh -huh. by, by marrying a white woman. Sure. Why, why do you say that's a mistake? Because shouldn't it be? The man fell in love with who he fell in love with? No, because marriage is a political decision. Who you marry tells me who you are. When you marry a woman, you don't just marry her. You marry her culture. You marry her community. You marry her people. You understand? So when a black man marries a white woman, he's making several clear uh, points and messages he's sending out to his own people. Because there's no greater symbol of your loyalty to your struggle than to marry a sister who shares that struggle. You have to be the person because you have to teach your son loyalty to his community. Mm. European Jews do it. Arabs do it. Chinese do it. East. We're the only people who feel anxious and ambivalent about telling our black boys that you better love and marry a black woman. And you know why we feel ambivalent? Because all of us have been conditioned by church envy to be colorblind. We're constantly told over and over again that it is wrong to be for yourself before you are for anyone else. And that's why Africans See, are dead last. I don't agree. I it's think, nothing I think wrong with being loyal not, to no, yourself. Nothing, there's nothing wrong with being loyal to yourself but yes, it's also sir. who you love i can't tell my son who he connects with better can that white woman ever understand your son's struggle no thank you so why would you want him to spend the rest of his life with a woman who can never understand how he feels when the new york city police department pulls him over Dr. Umar, you, you need a woman who can feel you and the only woman on earth who can understand the black man is the black woman and that's why i cannot respect a black man who is not committed to a black woman. That's the greatest symbol of pride in self. Uh, now, which I, I would dis obviously disagree with that, but I want you to speak into that because uh, we see this actually culturally, but then uh, as you and I have talked, we see this theologically where there are black and brown people who, who also seem to think that blacks haven't contributed anything and that white is just universal and preeminent. Right. You talk a little right. bit about that uh, theologically and then, of course, relationally to his comments about interracial marriage. 
Yeah, yeah. But, you know, Dr. Umar Johnson um, takes a bad rap. I know that people have really questioned his credentials. And I'm, I'm with the, the, the questioning of credentials piece. Mm -hmm. But it seems like that happens predominantly when we disagree with the viewpoint of the person who's communicating it. The first thing we try to do is tear down their credentials to see if they're actually an authoritative voice to speak on this particular matter. So I've been very careful about how I approach him in that regard. Uh, but I would say he, he, if he's saying that, and he has, that he's even challenging who he claims to be his blood relative, who was Frederick Douglass, who in his latter years married a white woman. I mean, even Dr. King dated a white woman in seminary. I, I mean, even Tupac was 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 talking to in a relationship with Madonna and wrote her a letter about how he doesn't think that the relationship can continue on because if it does it might send the wrong message to his contingent of fans so but but I don't believe that those brothers were black self-hating I believe that they they loved who they were they cared about their people that doesn't necessarily mean you don't you care about your people less because you marry outside of your race. You think about Harry, Harry Belafonte, who's a brother that was on the front lines of the civil rights movement that was married to a Caucasian lady. But theologically speaking, I, I think about Miriam and I think about Aaron challenging Moses because of his Cushite wife, whether that was Zipporah or not, it is what it is. But um, we don't know the confines of that conversation, those conversations necessarily, uh, but they were probably upset with him because he married outside of his race and didn't believe that she could truly affirm with the struggle of the Israelites being in the desert because she was an Ethiopian Nubian woman. Um, and the Lord showed them by, he showed Miriam specifically by striking her with leprosy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So he struck her with leprosy. We think about, you know, Joseph who married uh, a priest, one a, a young lady who was the priest of An, who was Egyptian. She was outside of his quote unquote race, if you will, in that respect. And the Lord seemed to bless it and bring forth the 12 tribes of Israel. We see countless examples throughout the scripture of people marrying outside their quote unquote race. But yeah. race as a social construct is an ideology that was developed to divide groups of people. This idea of being African-American was started. Umar Johnson has even said this started in 1988 on Temple's campus yeah. by uh, by Rev Reverend Jackson, Reverend Jesse Jackson. You know, this whole notion of uh certain groups being assimilated into whiteness like the irish like the catholics james baldwin talks about how giovanni became james and how you know all these uh, italian names took on the names of uh took on white names so that they can assimilate in into the culture more so um i know that dr umar johnson takes a lot of heat he takes a lot of pressure and understandably so i think that he says some things that are that are that are terrible that should not be communicated, calling Jesus, G Jimity, Jimmy, Jesus the cracker and all type of <laughs> vile type stuff. I mean, it's, it's terrible. Mm -hmm. uh, but on this, on this specific point, it shows that it's hypocritical in the sense that he hasn't even married an African-American woman yet. And in the sense that he said he lost that $2 million donation mm -hmm. because he was sexually involved with a young lady whose name is the, the conscious stripper, you know, so his words don't seem to match his actions. And on top of that, there are men who have done exponentially more than he has for the African-American community right. that have 
that have married white women and he has not married an African-American woman that has done anything. So, I mean, clearly we see that, I mean, in the scriptures, it's about spirituality, not necessarily the amount of melanin in your skin whom you marry. But I think that this is per per perpetuates the idea of, you know, that that means that this person is a black and self-hating because they've married white women. And I, that's just, that's just not the case. I mean, Again, another long-winded answer, but I think about some of the early abolitionists who, you know, abolished. They they were on the front line. They, many of them were white. Put themselves. They laid down their privilege in that sense of being able to assimilate in a do dominant culture, leverage their privilege for the benefit of ethnic minorities. You know, so many of them, those same brothers and sisters, were on the many white brothers and sisters were on the lines of civil rights movement. Um, it's controversial, but many of them are still fighting. Um, for, for the rights of African-Americans that are in police and communities that are believed are over police with the black lives matter movement. So, yeah, so I, Jesus is outside of our race in the sense that he's greater and better than us, but yet he decided to make us his church and use his privilege for our, for our good. So that's my basic. Answer. Yeah. That's a great point, man. We know God, you know, John four twenty four. God is spirit, right? So he's incorporeal. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have a body. Uh, but mm -hmm. in in his supernatural power, he gave us the hue that he gave certain people. Uh, and I think sure. it's important that we do affirm that. And I would agree with Dr. Johnson uh, in this sense um, that uh, I do think there should be some intentional affirmation of the black woman. Um, yes. I think I think because uh, in reality, in one sense, she's a double minority in terms of how she's treated because she's a woman, uh, even right. though the, the country has tons of women. But she's a woman and women are still not uh, completely equally treated. And we talk about pay and other things. And then, of yes. course, black. And so I'm with them in terms of I'm team black woman in, in the sense of uh, uh, affirmation and intentionality mm -hmm. about uh, commitment. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just wish it would have been a little bit more balanced about how black women are getting a master's degrees per capita uh, uh, pretty much faster than any other demographic. Right. So there's some things right. that we can we can highlight. Uh, about them. Uh, to, to wrap it up, man, I just want to know if there's anything that you would say uh, to the conscious brother or sister that will watch this and, and feels like uh, that will say, man, uh, you know, hopefully after this, we've been able to provide some historical data that God does have something to say to you if you're black or brown. He has something to say to all people, but specifically uh, to black and brown people. What would you say uh, to that conscious person? Yeah, man, I, I would say uh, be balanced in your research. You know, um, the, the pro-black brothers and sisters often ignore um, the contributions of African-American Christians as well. Um, I, I, I think there's nothing wrong with building our, our communities up, affirming our African-Americanness, uh, trying to close the wage gap specifically, um, trying to close the unemployment gap and fighting for black businesses and black banks. Um, I, 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 I'm all for that. That For me, that flows out of the Jer Jeremiah 29 piece where... We move, we inhabit communities, and we try to build up um, those communities for the betterment of society. I'm with that. I'm with better schools, better policing, mm -hmm. um, churches that communicate the gospel and that not only care about the communication of the text, but but express the fullness of it in service of the community. So I, I, I just wish some of our Pan-African brothers and sisters, some of our conscious brothers would, would realize that... Um, the church is not devoid of seeking to work in the community alongside them. And in fact, the black church has done more for the economic development of the communities that we live in more than anywhere else. 
right. uh, more than any right. other institution ever uh, that has ever been on the, the face of this planet. So, yeah, I would I would encourage them and, and do, do be balanced in your reading and um, just don't talk to people that write books. You know, just don't read books, but talk to people, talk to pastors, uh, read books by theologians, engage others in conversations about this. And um, I think we can come to more of an even handed approach that we don't just serve this. We don't serve a, a white Jesus who is a distant deity that stayed up in the sky and has a fairy father, but rather he's a Middle Eastern Jew that was in a socio socioeconomic context that was very similar to those living in third world poverty. He had little educational opportunities. And in the words of Howard Thurman, he more closely aligned with the oppressed and disinherited than anyone else. That's so in that, in that regard, I would say, if you look at Jesus for who he is and not through the, the goggles of the, the Western lens, you see a Jesus whose melanin is skin and whose actions and whose socioeconomic context matches more closely to ours than who they would consider the oppressor. Absolutely. Thanks for that, Ernest. I was just, uh, that's great. Fantastic answer, man. Thank you for, for your time on the urban perspective. I would only add one thing uh, to those brothers and sisters. Please use more than Google. <laughs> right. Find some books with footnotes. <laughs> yes. Yes, please, look, please, please. Yeah, I know that most of the most of the stuff that you pull up are from white guys. You know, right, Kersey Graves yeah. is a white guy. Kersey yeah. Graves was a white, non-educated, uh, pseudo paleontologist, man. You know, I mean, archaeologist. I'm sorry. Come on. Nah, nah. But thank you so much, man. I appreciate your time. It's and, a pleasure. Uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Looking forward to seeing you in October for yes. the frequency conference. Well, you'll see a lot of these uh, topics and more addressed. And what does the church, what is the church currently doing, has done, and what does the future look like for us? All that will be discussed at this conference that we want to make sure that you join us for that as well. You've been watching The Urban Perspective. Thank you so much. Peace.